Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Chip Chat Network Insights. Conversations exploring network transformation through interviews with industry experts. Welcome to Chip Chat Network Insights. My name is Allison Klein. We're coming to you from the Layer 123 NFV World Congress event in San Jose, and I'm delighted to be joined by Arun Rajagopal, NFV architect at Sprint. Welcome, Arun. How's it going? Oh, it's going great. How are you? I'm fantastic. I'm really excited to talk to you because I've been reading about um, what you guys have been doing, but let's let's get to it. Um, why don't you just start with an introduction on your role at Sprint and how that fits into um, Sprint's um, strategy for transforming the network. So uh, we're part of the uh, CTO organization at Sprint, and it's called Technology Innovation and Architecture. And um, our role inside of Sprint is to, um, you know, propose, uh, create, propose, recommend new technologies and architectures for uh, future deployment of networks. And you know, we play a pretty seminal role in how the future network at Sprint gets built. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and we provide those recommendations and, you know, a lot of that work involves, um, definitely a lot of innovation. You know, we do a lot of, um, um, you know, proof of concept type work and we do a lot of research work and, and this, uh, project C3PO specifically, um, is of the latter kind. You know, we did a lot of, uh, we are doing a lot of research work with Intel around how the, the future of the network, uh, should shape out, you know, both from, an architecture perspective as well as uh, from a performance perspective. You know, we are so used to buying um, big boxes uh, that uh, perform specific functions in the network, and you know the uh, the paradigm has shifted from you know buying big I and big boxes to where you know we're using general purpose compute for uh, we want to use general purpose compute for uh, the applications and the and the services that we run in the network and essentially build a network on top of a um, a platform an infrastructure platform that's compute based and then software applications performing the the specific functions that the network elements need to perform. So we started this work with Intel a couple of um, uh, a few years ago, actually four years ago, uh, that we started this work with Intel, mostly around uh, you know trying to improve performance of existing network applications, software-based network applications, and um, you know we, we we kind of got to a point where uh, we figured, okay, you know what, you know for us to kind of get to the performance levels that we really need to get to, we need to rethink how. Uh, network applications, especially the wireless uh, core, the LTE EPC, is mm-hmm. uh, is, is built and uh, architected, and and that got us down this path of, uh, of 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 creating the solution, of putting the solution together, where it's a joint collaboration now between Intel and Sprint, where uh, we um, essentially created three pieces of software really um, that comprise uh, what's uh, called C3PO. C3PO stands for Clean Cup score for packet optimization, which is my favorite acronym of of 2017. Well, that's, that's awesome, right? We, we we love uh, acronyms, you know, that kind of jive with the, uh, you know, with, with the um, the culture of today, mm-hmm. right? Anyway, so the uh, the uh, uh, the the notion of C3PO is that we have 
um, a separation of control plane and user plane for the LTE EPC, which is not a new uh, you know concept. You know, it's uh, it's in the standards. There's different ways of you know doing this, and you know this is our version of you know how the uh, the uh, separation of user plane and control plane will be implemented. But what's different, I think, about this implementation that we've managed to put together is uh, the the performance benchmarks that we've been able to hit. Uh, you know, with the uh, code base that we have already developed. And uh, the um, uh, once again, you know, the the architecture is really, you know, we have a control plane function, we have a user plane or data plane function, and we have an SDN controller. So, so really, three different mm -hmm. pieces that come together to perform the the wireless EPC function uh, combined um, SAE gateway function, as it as it would be typically typically called in a wireless network. And uh, what uh, what we are able to do with this is, you know, with a minimal pretty minimal uh, compute footprint, we are able to, uh, you know, really exceed our own expectations about uh, performance and how the mm -hmm. uh, the end-to-end the -end system performs. And uh, the uh, the idea is to kind of, um, you know, get people exposed to this architecture. That's why we're doing uh, a demo here at NFV World Congress, um, you know, in collaboration with Intel. We have a demo booth. Um, at, uh, actually, we have a table at the Intel booth where we'll be jointly uh, co-hosting this demonstration with Intel, uh, with our partners from Intel. So um, the uh, the idea is to get the open source community more engaged with the effort that we have already done and put into this work. And you know, this actually is already open source. The C3PO solution has been open source. Like I said, there are three components to it. Uh, the control plane and the user plane function, the data plane functions have been open sourced um, uh, in the COD, uh, in the mobile, mob, you know, in the mobile COD um, uh, forum uh, associated with Owen Labs. And mm -hmm. the SDN controller component is actually an open daylight plugin, and that has been uh, open sourced as well in the open daylight forum. So um, all the components are open sourced and available for um, uh, you know for the community to participate in. And that's where we really uh, ex hope that you know we will be able to take this work that there will be a much bigger, broader community engagement in the work that we're doing in the uh, in the collaboration, the research work we're doing with Intel. So we jointly get to develop a much better solution that becomes a reference benchmark for a uh, high-performance uh, evolved packet core for LTE applications. Now, obviously, um, four years in the making, mm -hmm. that's an incredible engineering investment um, and uh, engineering collaboration. Tell me why you chose to work with Intel on this, and what did um, what did Sprint bring? What did Intel bring in terms of a, a synergistic uh, team to deliver something? It's a good question, right? So we didn't get to see uh, C3PO. Um, you know, C3PO didn't happen uh, like uh, you know, like overnight, right? It, it was a journey, right? We didn't start the collaboration work with Intel thinking we'll get to C3PO, right? Right. The intent when we first engaged with Intel. Uh, was uh, to understand um, where the performance bottlenecks are for the EPC application to run on, you know, a general-purpose compute platform, right? So we we had a lot of uh, solutions available at that time. Very early solutions, uh, really, you know, that um, where. Um, you know, some of the early uh, NFE applications that came out, you know, that we could lay our hands on. We looked at the um, the, the uh, available options out there, and we figured, you know, we are 
possibly not utilizing the underlying compute platform to its fullest extent to to deliver all that it can deliver. So there's probably a lot of headroom left mm -hmm. that we need to probably you know uh, try to. Uh, you know, utilize and, and, and make use of and make the applications more efficient, right? So that's where we started off with Intel. And, and in, in, the, in the course of that, you know, progression really, you know, trying to first understand where the performance bottlenecks are that, that were preventing state-of-the-art solutions at that time from performing to their fullest extent to where, you know, we identified what those potential performance bottlenecks can be. Mm -hmm. And then we, we thought about, okay, so now if we were to kind of, you know, wipe the slate clean, and, and figure out how to create the same solution in a way that would maximize performance, right? You know, where would that take us, right? right. So that thinking started maybe about a year and a half ago. Um, um, probably, yeah, a little, little, uh, little more than a year and a half ago is when that thinking seriously took hold in our collaboration work, right? That, you know, what if we start writing some code ourselves, right, to kind of create a reference architecture uh, that can prove that Intel x86 platforms can perform better than what industry uh, performance benchmarks were at that time. Sure. Right. And the the reason, uh, I mean, obviously, you know, we've uh, we've enjoyed uh, this partnership that we've had with Intel. You know, uh, we've. Uh, We've gained a lot from it. We're hoping that Intel has also uh, gained a lot, uh, you know, in this collaboration, you know, you know that we've been working together on. Uh, you know, the the one of the at least the base, basic uh, thinking, you know, was you know when we started this work with Intel, who understands Intel architecture better than Intel, right? Who understands the Intel chipset, the Xeon mm -hmm. chipset better than Intel, right? So why shouldn't we work with Intel to understand how we can get the most um, value and efficiencies out of an application uh, that is running on top of the Intel platform, right? And be leveraging uh, the data plane development kit, uh, DPDK, um, mm -hmm. and trying to leverage it to the fullest extent. And that's really the, uh, the, uh, the, um, uh, the, the skill set and the, the skill sets and the resources that Intel brought to the table, uh, their uh, expertise in understanding how data plane development kit, DPDK, can be used to mm -hmm. create uh, applications that are uh, much higher performing than you know what used to be uh, the state of those same applications before they moved to DPDK. So we got a lot of um, very, very, very knowledgeable and skillful resources from Intel. And Intel actually wrote the control plane and data plane functions of uh, the EPC. And Sprint actually, um, you know, put in resources to develop the SDN controller pieces. So it's a joint collaboration, Intel doing the, uh, the data plane and the control plane uh, functions, which are two independent pieces of code. And then Sprint developing the SDN controller piece, right? So, and, and together, putting this EPC together that we think uh, can and uh, can definitely meet expectations, probably hopefully exceed expectations of the community on on what applications can do on on Intel compute platforms. And and uh, so going back to your question, mm -hmm. right? So the the reason why we picked Intel, well, who better uh, you know than Intel to uh, to help us find what the the limits of the performance envelope on Intel compute platforms can be for applications like the LTE PC. Now. You used a Xeon E5 2680 processor, mm -hmm. V4, mm -hmm. um, for this configuration. And, and I know that you achieved some incredible performance on this platform based mm -hmm. on um, the number of subscribers that you could be supporting mm -hmm. within Sprint's 
a vast network. Can you mm-hmm. talk a little bit about that? True, right? And, and so the performance benchmarks, um, you know, that we've hit um, are uh, we are very happy about that. You know, mm-hmm. you know, in about a year worth of development that we put in, you know, to be able to you know hit these kind of performance benchmarks, we think uh, is quite uh, quite a substantial achievement. So uh, what we have the the, the minimum uh, configuration uh, from a compute perspective that we need for a C3PO uh, deployment is uh, seven compute cores. So if you kind of look at um, a socket, you know, the number of cores on it, right? So, you know, we need seven compute cores for a minimal uh, Mm -hmm. C3PO deployment of which, um, you know, we have a, a few cores that are performing, if I may describe them that way, overhead functions, and we have uh, one compute core actually performing the control plane function and, and um, uh, a, a separate core dedicated for what we are describing as packet processing. Mm-hmm. So the overhead cores really enable uh, the packet processing core to take the packets that are coming in from the, the wireless side of the network process the packet and send them on to their internet destination. So the packet processing core is really the workhorse here that does all the work that a uh, that an EPC really should be doing. And you know what's been implemented on that packet processing core is a is a pipeline architecture for uh, packet processing. So it's mm-hmm. you know we call it the packet processing pipeline. So that particular uh, you know with a single packet processing core albeit with the other overhead cores that, you know, facilitate the functioning of the packet processing core, you know, we are able to hit, and and these are, you know, lab uh, numbers that we see in the sprint labs, you know, we are able to uh, hit, um, you know, for 500,000 subscribers, so half a million subscribers, um, you know, we uh, were able to hit about 1.6, 1.63 almost million packets per second wow. that also saturated a 10 gig uh, a pair of 10 gig NICs that we have uh, that we had actually on that um, uh, compute node. So um, really, you know, uh, you know what we see there is, um, you know, with with addition of well, so what we see there is with the addition of packet processing cores. Uh, so from the one packet processing core, if you go to two, to three, to four, and possibly beyond, right? We've tested and sort, you know, kind of um, uh, classified or we have characterized performance up to four, you know, packet processing nodes. We have linear scaling up mm-hmm. to, you know, those four uh, packet processing cores. For the same f- half a million subscribers with uh, four packet processing cores, we are able to get to uh, about, you know, six point some, you know, six point two five or there six hundred fifty, uh, sorry, 6.5 million uh, packets per second, really, for. 500,000 subscribers. Now the numbers get better, you know, when we go to a smaller number of subscribers. You know, mm-hmm. we, you know, uh, that's how the the architecture currently is uh, scaling. So with 50,000 subscribers on a single packet processing core, we are able to hit about 2.2, little less than 2.2 million PPS packets per second. Mm-hmm. And with four packet processing cores with 50,000 subscribers, we are able to hit a little more than 8 million PPS. Right. So it's almost linear scaling. It's it's near mm-hmm. perfect linear scaling that we are getting with um, uh, with the addition of packet processing. So what that tells us is, you know, the the ability of this uh, architecture to scale mm-hmm. vertically, uh, it, it looks very good for what we have characterized it up to. Now, we also have uh, work in progress right now that we're continuing to work with Intel on, on the horizontal scaling aspects of mm-hmm. it. So it's not just vertical scaling that we're looking at. We are wanting to make sure that, you know, we can deploy multiple instances of this uh, you know, in parallel, you know, using the SDN right. controller that we have uh, in the mix, right, to have an SDN controlled network of um, EPC components that 
can scale up and down, you know, both vertically and horizontally. So that can feed millions of subscribers. Oh, absolutely, right. Mm-hmm. So we can. So the the hope is that you know we will using this architecture be able to go up to you know uh, millions of subscribers in any one location. You know, both scaling horizontally and vertically if mm-hmm. required, um, and and uh, with SDN control kind of seamlessly integrated into the rest of the network fabric, right? And so um, very excited about the numbers that we were able to hit, and really it's almost you know with just less I would say about less than a year's worth of uh, you know development and resources dedicated to uh, making this work you know the you know the fact that we've hit these numbers and uh, you know the fact that you know there's potential for improvement uh, for these numbers mm-hmm. you know we don't think we have optimized and fine-tuned it to its um, uh, fullest extent so there there is definitely uh, room for improvement at least that's what we think so so we think with the uh, with the open source community kind of uh, uh, joining hands together with us in this effort, you know, we can definitely make the solution better and do do better, perform better. It's interesting, Rin. This is a great example of how um, leading comm service providers like Sprint are taking a much more active role in terms of open source development um, to push the network forward. Mm-hmm. What do you think is driving that um, that new focus on open source innovation within this space? Well, it, it is de- you know open source is definitely a, an opportunity for us to um, you know uh, kind of take the innovation that we have right and expose it to a larger audience right. We're not in the business of selling software right. right. You know, we are a comp service provider right. You know, we don't we don't necessarily sell software applications. We use network app- software applications and network applications to build our network. So open source is really a very good opportunity for us to kind of show our innovation, showcase our innovation really to uh, you know, to the to the rest of the world really, right? Mm-hmm. And also invite more participation so we can refine those solutions and and um, you know success for us would be, you know, if if the open source uh, software that we have developed gets enough traction out there that a lot more people start, you know, collaborating on that and then it becomes a much more robust reference benchmark for applications that are created by the, the you know the the community in general the network equipment providers the the OEMs you know anybody you know that's actually involved in the business of making software solutions like this right that you know the uh, the open source community kind of feeds into those efforts mm-hmm. where at the end of the day the service provider community gets uh, to leverage the benefit of all the work that's happening in that space and get viable and deployable solutions that we can use to build our network uh, a much more efficient and uh, you know lower cost network, right? So we, we 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 think the open source effort, the open source community has a significant role to play in how um, networks of the future um, uh, evolve, mm-hmm. how uh, networks of the future will be operated and maintained, and uh, and and uh, in, you know the amount of innovation going into that space um, is, is um, uh, you know it, it it definitely gives us um, uh, a reason. Uh, to you know, to want to contribute more to it, so so we can you know provide better, more reliable, and robust solutions that uh, generally raises the bar for the whole industry, you know, to uh, to be able to provide better solutions and more efficient solutions. So I'm sure we've piqued interest on the developers listening online about C3PO and. Not everyone is here in San Jose this mm-hmm. week, so for those here in San Jose, please come visit. But um, where can folks find out more information about what you've delivered to the open source community and engage further? 
So, um, you know, when the press releases come out about this, um, uh, about this work, about this collaboration and about C3PO in general, you know, there will be links in there to um, how people can access, um, you know, the work effort. But uh, broadly, right, and like I said, the SDN controller is... Uh, an open daylight plugin, so the SDN controller can definitely be, you know, if you if you want to go to the open daylight forum and look up an FPC agent, or if you Google, you know, if you go look and search for that, you will find that in the open daylight mm -hmm. forum. The SDN controller is open source through open daylight, and the uh, the control plane and the data plane functions are uh, open source uh, through the COD forum um, mm -hmm. under Owen Labs, so that's where you will find that. So if you go there and look for Next Generation Core, you'll likely find that as well. But now these are not totally open to the public yet. You know, they are, you know, right. you can actually uh, be invited in, and if you go there and, and, and indicate your interest, I think uh, it'll, it'll probably be just a um, um, you know, uh, it's it's an easy process for you to get added to the list that will you know have access to the uh, uh, the open source code. So that's where you need to go look. Own Labs, the MCOD uh, forum in Own Labs, and Open Daylight, um, uh, you mm -hmm. know, in the Open Daylight forum. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for sharing this exciting milestone in the joint innovation between Sprint and Intel. Uh, thanks for spending some time uh, with us today. I know your schedule is very busy. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Welcome to Chip Chat Network Insights. I'm Allison Klein. We're coming to you live from the NFV World Forum event in San Jose, and I'm joined by Adam Dunstan, VP of SDN and NFV Engineering at CenturyLink. Welcome, Adam. Thanks. Happy to be here. So, Adam, why don't we just start um, with a background on CenturyLink and, and your role there and how that fits into the overarching industry transition of networks um, to virtualization. Yeah, we started our journey towards virtualization quite some years ago now. We're at, uh, you know, I think at least our third or fourth iteration of virtualization for, for network services in the infrastructure. I came to the company about nine months ago uh, as part of a, an acquisition, and uh, uh, one of the things uh, that I was asked to look after was our, you know, continuing development of our NFV infrastructure. And I look after the development part of it, not the operations part of it. And so we have a traditional... Uh, you know, carrier model where we have an operations team and development teams and of course one of our many challenges is how we merge those things together to this new world of managing a very different infrastructure than we kind of have today. Obviously CenturyLink is running one of the largest network infrastructures in North America. Mm. Um, tell me about what you've seen in terms of um, the perception of um, network function virtualization and um, trust in that technology in terms of a deployable uh, technology and operations. And where do you think we need to go in terms of innovation? Yeah, it's a, a difficult question because it's not really about trust, it's more about process and how do we get our processes to work the right way. Mm -hmm. um, a question I've been asked quite a lot of times is, is NFV carrier grade? And, uh, you know, it's a really interesting thing to think about for a second. Who says something's carrier grade? Right. Not a vendor. A carrier does, right? And so we say when something's carrier grade, as do our, yeah, as do our competitors in, in the marketplace, they go and say that. And so we have a, 
you know, a set of processes that we use to test products for deployment, and it's the integrity of those processes that makes a product carry a grade. And so we have to apply those processes in, mm-hmm. in the, or those disciplines in a somewhat different way because they were built around a, a, a structure of the network and a structure of an organization that was different. So we have to maintain our, you know, the integrity of our, of our verification infrastructure while we change the processes that we get in the path to get into that place of reliability that's sufficient you know, to meet our customers' needs. I would think it's a closed-loop process then in terms of what you get as feedback from those processes and validation or whatever you want to call it mm. into the next um, wave of development uh, for your organization. Yeah, and, I, and we do largely development um, mm-hmm. and development all the way into things like, you know, the things that we used to buy from from our vendor partners. We still buy many things from our vendor partners, but we now build things as well. And so the the challenge around maintaining, you know, that, that closed-loop system is one, you know, fitting into it in a different way uh, because we're also trying to address transparency inside the organization so we all, you know, get better at running this. And then the other part is how do we increase velocity? You know, so one of the things we're working through today is how do we, instead of going down this path of the product was complete from the vendor, then it goes into our test organization. When it was in the vendor's organization, it was going through iterations of SQA testing, right? Mm-hmm. So an, SQA is an iterative testing when you're a vendor. Testing is a, you know, kind of a, in, a, in the carry world, is a, it's now ready, now I'll test it. It doesn't have the level of iteration. So as we merge those two together, we're trying to get it to be iterative. And the challenge often is just simply reporting up to leadership that we are you know, X percentage into the first iteration of our testing. And they're so used to this being a block you started on this day, you'll be done by this day, as opposed to having it iterated inside engineering, if that makes sense, I think, yeah, I'm trying to explain. Sure. So it's a, that gets us velocity. And, you know, the key outcome that we're seeking out of this, of course, we want to have new services and improve reliability, mm-hmm. but we want to increase velocity. Mm-hmm. You know, the time, everybody knows that carrier networks are extremely labor-intensive to run. It's not new news to anybody who's looked around. And it's also not new news that it takes us you know, longer than perhaps it should to bring services up. And so the best way we can help drive our bottom line is to increase velocity. Sure. Because we're a big business, as you said, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know almost $20 billion. This is a big business, and velocity is the best way for us to, you know, increase the size, and the, uh, the size of our business. And, of course, it's key for customer satisfaction. Now that leads perfectly into my next question. You're doing a fireside chat here at the event mm-hmm. on infrastructure automation. Are we there yet? Obviously, yeah. automation has a lot to do with the velocity we are able to achieve. What, what's your perspective on that question? Well, it's, it's a long road. And so when I talk about this internally, and we talk about this a lot internally, and uh, you know, we have a whole program of internal uh, you know, educational series for our employees, particularly in the organization we call PDNT, which is our engineering organization. Um, when I talk about these presentations, they're called, we talk about our journey to, mm-hmm. uh, to uh, SDN and NFV, and that's exactly what we're on is a journey to this. So we're somewhere into it. You know, an, an interesting anecdote on this one is we, uh, we were deploying a new service, something we put into production last year, and uh, it's our data center interconnect service that's virtualized. And, uh, and uh, I looked at this service, and I'm like, we haven't finished the automation here yet. I mean, we should not be going forward. So I started to stop the process as we mm-hmm. put this into production, just as we're doing the beta phase, and said, we've we got more work to do here. The product manager calls me up and he goes, Adam, you know, the process that you're replacing 
which using traditional equipment has 14 steps for activation that, that wow. someone <laughs> undertakes, right? This new one has three steps mm-hmm. or four steps. I can't remember exactly the number, don't quote me, but he said it's less steps. And so I realize it's not what you want it to be, but it's a lot better than what we have. So this is a good step. So we should do this. And, you know, and uh, I agreed, of course. And mm-hmm. But it was an interesting learning in that, you know, oftentimes we look at some of these processes and without drilling into the actual details of the individual processes, you know, how do you, you don't realize the the, the benefit that you are providing in doing it, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's a journey. We obviously want to be at, you know, zero steps in this process. We'd like a customer to click on a website, click, 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 and that be fully automated. But going sure. from 14 to 5 is a good step and going from 14 to 1, which is our next step, and then going through full automation, all of those are powerful steps for the company. You know, it's an interesting juxtaposition from where I think some heads are in the marketplace where if we imagine it, then all of a sudden it's working. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, So I guess one question that I have for you is what message would you have back to the industry on this point in terms of driving further innovation around automation? When we think about automation, most of the time, we focus on simplicity. And and this is a common thread in almost everything that I talk about. We are wound up in complexity and uh, and we revel in increasing amounts of complexity and we already inherit a pile of complexity. We have a very complex system. We have a portfolio of products that defies imagination. And so so everybody comes in with, you know, something that's even more complex again. And we're on a very different path here. We're down the path of how do I get simplicity? Because reducing permutations really doesn't require a whole lot of engineering work to create simplicity. If you have less things to do, you have less things to do. Mm-hmm. So our path to simplicity is is a continuous reduction of permutations. And so by doing that, we do less work to get more automation. And of course, that's the benefit that the web scale guys have, right? They started from scratch. They're not, and they haven't got all this baggage to carry behind it. So when, when the industry comes to us and says, I've got something even more complicated that solves this really complicated problem. I kind of go, I'm not that interested in this. I mean, bring me something that's simpler. Let's figure out how to do this simpler. The challenge for the industry is when we cut this down to its, to its minimum set of parts, you know, how do you figure out the, the cost value curve? And I think that's a challenge for, you know, the people who are selling us things to us and selling products and services to us to figure their way through because it's not uncommon knowledge when you go and look at any traditional piece of equipment that out of the out of the feature set we use about 20 25 percent of the features on any one of these devices yet we pay for 100 percent of them and this is not new news to anybody right and so our simplification exercise is a, in a big part is reducing down to what we really use and if we can just do that and then write engineering or do the engineering around that, it actually is not a massively intractable problem for us as we reduce our permutations and then write tooling for our permutations. It's a big problem for someone who's trying to build a product to sell to all of the carriers with the combination of all their permutations into the solution they're trying to sell and then try and go and extract, you know, value at that price is a very hard problem to solve. I don't know how you solve it. Right. You know, so so we go down this in a whole different path. We say, what do we need? And in fact it's as simple in many cases in the when we go on and I talk when I talk to people I talk about how we need source code and why we need source code. When we go and build stuff, mm-hmm. we we take out 
the things that we don't use. Right. So, for example, you know, the, the we're working in the area of white boxes. I mean, we don't use certain routing protocols. We we don't not configure them. We don't compile them into the image. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So therefore, they can't fail, right? We can't have a a failure associated with a piece of software that we never really use that's wound into something because it simply isn't there. Well, that's a great example of a lot of challenges with products. I just bought yeah. a new car, and it came with, hey, here's an appointment with somebody to teach you how to use the infotainment system. And it's yeah. like, oh, my God, now I have to be trained how to use terrible, my car, it? Yeah, right? Terrible, isn't it? Um, which is, you know, maybe some great features, but not necessarily benefits to me. Yeah. So I think that um, you bring up a really good point. And, you know, when we look at this as an industry, I think you hit it. We have to deliver a number of different capabilities to reach the different needs of all customers in the marketplace. Right. So that that configurability and simplification so that just the right feature set gets turned on for you seems to be a key um, attribute towards actually moving from a, a concept to deployment. Yeah, one of the things that we use is in this in this dialogue and with our teams is they go looking at products and they go look at things because, of course, our business is a combination of these things. Our partners, our vendor partners are important to our business and we, we recognize the contribution they make to us. But one of the ways we've started to work our way through this as we talk to our teams is we say, hey, guys, go beyond what you used to look at. Drill into the component architecture, or the term we use is own the component architecture. So instead of looking at some device as a, a, a in the glossy brochure that we would see for that, we go, we want to go and learn what's inside it. So mm-hmm. we drill into what's inside it. And now that we get into owning the component architecture, of course, just one of the reasons we talk to Intel, because Intel's you know, a component, a key component in so many Mm-hmm. platforms that we use we want to drill into this next thing and that also drives simplicity you know it would surprise no one that we have every version of every type of database <laughs> inside CenturyLink right yeah. yet there are really only two classes of databases there's big data databases and relational databases mm-hmm. any one area may have all these different types of databases because we bought this solution as a silo solution. We bought an FCAPS thing for you know right. fault, fault and whatever it is, right? And so, and so you think about it, you know, fault and performance, right? The two of FCAPS. I mean, mm-hmm. firstly, what's the difference between them? They're right. exactly the same. If poor performance is a fault, and fault is poor performance, <laughs> right? But if you go and look inside our FCAPS system, you'll find all these different databases in there. What we're losing from the from not ha- owning the component architecture and having simplicity here is that we lose the network power of data, which is what the web scale guys are doing such a great job of sure. getting is the network power of data. So we say, you know, go and look at the component architecture. When we get in there, we, we don't want to add another database to the roster. We want to put all this into our database complex so we can get the network power of data. So another example of why owning the component architecture as we describe it Very is, really important, is really important to us. So when you when you talk about um, you know where you are today, which seems like to be at an inter- intermediary step, Mm-hmm. Um, towards an, a vision of um, full automation of differentiated services, where do you think? You, when do you think you're going to hit that point? And um, tomorrow, what is and tomorrow and never, right? I mean, <laughs> so, so in some cases, tomorrow, in some cases, we'll mm-hmm. we'll, we'll kind of never get there, right? Um, it's it's not a it's not a we have objectives, and so mm-hmm. so to give you some sense, fifty more than fifty percent of our network is under SDN control today, is under automation control, mm-hmm. um, and so we're a long way, uh, sure. you know, into this. Um, you know, we have uh, we have uh, services running in you know more than thirty 
30 CEOs and data centers today that are virtualized. We have uh, thousands of VMs running, you know, production loads. We have, uh, you know, three sets of key services that we run on virtualization. You know, we run SD-WAN, we run uh, network-based firewall services, and we run data center interconnect services across those complexes. So, and they're all at different levels of automation. Some of them are very automated. Some of them have manual aspects associated with it. Our goal is really out of automation is to take our, our people resources and apply them to serving our customers. Mm-hmm. Right? This is why we're doing this, is to apply those people resources that are currently wound up in, in you know, tapping on keyboards and looking at boxes, and we're putting automation in place so we can take this, this, this people resource that we have, which is a valuable resource, and apply that to the needs of our customers. And we see that's the path forward to, sure. to automation. So do we want to automate everybody out of, uh, out of the process? No, we don't want to do that. What we want to do is apply our people to serve our customers more directly. And that's really what drives our path towards automation and, and, uh, and it helps us make the decisions as to what to automate and what not to automate. If a task is being done that is really, you know, is really very rudimentary or not even perhaps very complicated, but doesn't, but is just a, a cog in the wheel that, that, you know, doesn't directly help us serve our customers better, then that's a target. That's right, an immediate sure. target. So that's how we think about it. Well, Adam, we want to grow our business. That's the end goal, right? Yeah. Well, thank you so much for spending time with us today. It was a real pleasure. I uh, would love to have you back to hear more about this journey Certainly. at CenturyLink. Great. Thanks very much. I appreciate it. Welcome to Chip Chat. My name is Allison Klein. We're coming to you live from the NFV World Congress event in San Jose, and I am delighted to be joined by Bill Hackenberger, Vice President of Data Security at Hitrust. Welcome. Hi. Thanks. Happy to be here. So um, Intel and Hitrust have had a collaboration um, for a number of years, uh, Bill, but we've never had uh, you on the program. So why don't we just start with uh, talking a little bit about Hitrust's uh, role in the industry and and a little bit of history on the company. Sure. Um, so Hytrust was actually founded, believe it or not, back in 2007. So mm-hmm. a long time ago, in fact, when, when VMware went public. And um, the founder, Eric Chu, really uh, founded the company based on recognizing that even in those early days that he thought virtualization was going to be essentially become the new OS. Mm-hmm. And when you look at that from a security perspective, um, there's a lot of issues that it creates. So way back then the company was actually founded on this notion of saying how do we make it easier to adopt virtualization um, and do it in a way that's secure and in a way that is non-disruptive to the kinds of activities that you really need to do in the network. So that was the founding of the company. Um, Then later, uh, in the meantime, I've been in the security space for many years and uh, previously I was the CEO of a company called HiCloud where we built encryption and key management for um, virtualized and cloud environments. Mm-hmm. Um, again, same idea, basically saying with the advent of virtualization and cloud, how do you make this easier, more consumable, you know, less mm-hmm. disruptive? Um, and in 2013, HiCloud was bought by HiTrust. 
Mm-hmm. And so I that, joined. That works out from a naming perspective. It did. Nice. It did, yes. We, we spelled H, uh, high trust is H-Y and high cloud is H-I-G-H. Okay. But other than that, it was uh, definitely, uh, we were only about a half mile from each other. So That's good. it was very easy that way. And what ended up happening was is that we've merged the two technologies. So the governance side mm-hmm. of the virtual infrastructure with the data security side of encryption and key management. And more recently, we've done a lot of work with Intel. So HITRUST is also part-owned by uh, Cisco, VMware, and Intel, and we do a lot of work with Intel, including a lot of um, activation and use of a lot of the security and performance acceleration technologies that are built into the Xeon chipset. Mm-hmm. Um, when, you, when you look at um, the changes in terms of approach of trust and, and um, encryption and security management in a cloud architecture, what are the things that really come to mind in terms of the changes that um, IT operators need to think about sure. in terms of uh, managing security? Yeah, I think that there's a, there's a couple. Um, one is, uh, I'll, I'll mention first sort of the security side and then the compliance side. So on the security side, um, the old environment where you really had uh, uh, groups, administrators, um, administrative activity was pretty stovepiped partially because of the physical uh, boundaries that were established because you had storage over here and networking over there and so on. Um, With virtualization and certainly with cloud, then when all of those things broke down, you um, then administrative privilege really started to take on this much more bigger, more uh, impactful uh, role uh, with respect to security. So if you're a, a V admin, you have godlike privileges. You can mm-hmm. really uh, impact the environment in ways that you don't even anticipate. Because a lot of a lot of breaches are not the result of malfeasance. They're just because somebody's doing their job, they made a change, they didn't realize the impact it had uh, with respect to their network or respect to their storage in a virtualized setting in particular, and then that becomes a vulnerability. So we, so I see two things. One is, is that um, one is that the the scope and nature of the administrative roles has changed dramatically. And also that, that the virtual environment is so much more dynamic and things are changing and agile that what, you know, what might have been okay on Tuesday becomes a problem on Wednesday and you didn't even realize that happened. So one of the areas that we certainly focus in is saying how do we provide secure governance over the administration of a virtual infrastructure and do that in a way that you can establish security policy but still allow your V admins to do their job and go about their business, w- interact with their, their tools and everything in the way they normally do, but we're sort of sitting there in the background making sure that they stay within their swim lanes, and if mm-hmm. they deviate from that, we can sort of catch that or, or, or create audit logs and so on. So that's one piece. Um, the other piece is that data in a virtualized cloud environment is um, uh, ubiquitous. So. Mm-hmm. In an old setting, you had you know, a server, the server was backed up, it was, it was kind of a rigid environment. Now you have a virtual machine, it's cloned, it's duplicated, it's, there's DR images, there's backup images, they go to the cloud, you're crossing between uh, uh, on-prem private cloud and off-prem public cloud and so on. So where y- your data used to be sort of one entity, now there's many copies of it spread out all over the place. Sure. So how do you secure that and remain in control without, um, you know, again, being disruptive? So that's where encryption and, in particular, 
key management that's designed to work for the sort of dynamism of the cloud environment uh, can apply. And uh, so really, I think both of those areas are things that organizations are still just now they're really sort of getting their hands around. Now, I know that you guys have talked a lot about collaborations with Intel around our trusted execution technology, um, providing a hardware root of trust. Tell me how that um, intersects the the uh, scope that you just described. Sure. So one of the things, and, and actually this relates also to compliance very uh, heavily, so, uh, and I'll use that as an example. So you're probably familiar with GDPR. So mm -hmm. this is you know, an EU-based initiative that, that puts a high bar, let's just say, on being able to protect private citizens' data and, and uh, data security, data privacy uh, for EU citizens. And um, it's geolocation uh, sensitive. And so what TXT does, so TXT Trusted Execution Technology is built into the, the chipset with um, the ability to do two things. One is it will attest that the host is trusted. And the way it does that is that when you know, power comes to the chip, the first thing it does is it says, is the hardware okay? That's okay. Is the firmware, is the BIOS okay? That's okay. It looks up and says, is the hypervisor okay? Mm -hmm. And it's doing that by taking uh, certain kinds of cryptographic measurements and sort of think of it as a, um, a kind of like whitelisting to make a determination. Is the base of this system acceptable, known, and trusted? So that's the first thing it does. Second thing it does is it gives us the ability, it works in conjunction with a product we call Cloud Control. Cloud Control acts as a, an attestation server. So it's talking to TXT and saying, are you known and trusted? And if you're known and trusted, then I want to be able to have the ability to place labels, uh, tags, mm -hmm. um, inside the TPM. So the TPM is, a, is called the Trusted Platform Module. Think of it as a, a little bit of uh, chip that's a little bit of tamper-proof memory that's soldered into the motherboard, basically. Mm -hmm. And what that lets us do is to be able to put values in, in that uh, TPM and to have TXT make sure that they are, in fact, the values we put in there, they can't be tampered with, et cetera. And what, all, what those values let us do is do things like tag host for geolocation. Mm -hmm. So we can attest that that system is in Germany. Right. And so when you couple that with, for instance, our, our uh, encryption product, data control, you get to do what we would call data geofencing. And the idea there is, is that I encrypt a virtual machine in its workload, and we do that in a very automated, you know, non-disruptive way. Um, and I want to, say, run that workload, um, but it has German citizens' data, let's say. Mm -hmm. uh, so I want to make sure that that workload, number one, is if, if an administrator maybe accidentally comes along and tried to do something like a vMotion and move that workload off, off that host to some other host that wasn't in Germany, um, Cloud Control would preclude that. Would right. say, we're not going to let you do that. Now, the other scenario is if somebody came along and maybe they grabbed an image of that virtual machine out of storage and they mm -hmm. tried to, you know, walk it out of Germany and, and plug it in somewhere, gain access to it, what Data Geofencing does is says, I won't decrypt that workload and its data unless I'm on an attested host in Germany. And so that, that allows you to um, be able to protect your data at rest and your virtual machines uh, in the face of things like GDPR where you have these geolocation boundaries. And so the 
values like, uh, so geolocation is a good example of it. Other examples could be security zones. Mm -hmm. I could say that's my, you know, data center three rack number five. That's where I have my, you know, um, high security applications. I want them to be held within that boundary. Or another case might be, say, PCI regulation. I want those hosts to be my PCI compliant hosts. And if somebody were to attempt to, you know, move a PCI compliant workload outside of that boundary, we wouldn't let them, we wouldn't let it decrypt outside the boundary. So we call that overall solution boundary controls. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Now you talk about um, in-flight and at rest in terms of providing um, additional security capability. Where are we in terms of protection of workloads and data in flight, and how does that intersect with network capability? Sure. So one of the uh, – there's a variety of places where things can be in flight. One of those places is are they in flight as part of a storage protocol? Mm-hmm. And so um, one approach to that is when you're encrypting above the hypervisor, think of what we call VM encryption, when we're encrypting above the hypervisor, then everything that transits through the hypervisor or to the storage layer is is encrypted. Mm-hmm. And so as it transits for backups and so on. So that's one way that you can do protection. The other way, and, and especially as it's relevant to uh, um, NFV, is is obviously the advent of, of software-defined networking. And in particular, uh, again, because we're, we're part-owned by VMware, VMware, uh, we worked with VMware to create secure governance for NSX. Mm-hmm. So in that case, we're providing uh, the ability to, um, NSX does its job, of course, of course, which includes things like micro-segmentation and all of that. But um, similarly, the people that manage an NSX environment, the, those administrators, um, can easily um, maybe accidentally get themselves in trouble or, or um, cross a lot of lines with respect to security. So in Hytros Cloud Control, what we're able to do is provide secure governance over all the actions of the administrator. So that's one thing. The other is uh, to, you know, to make sure that, in fact, we're, we're protecting, uh, we're acting according to security policy um, as administrators of NSX. And then the other is that we want to be able to harden that environment. Mm-hmm. So um, this is true for good security practice as well as regulation. So you, you see a lot of, for instance, every PCI DSS, the, the payment card industry regulation, specifically stipulates that if you have um, uh, any host that is providing the virtual infrastructure, so let's say ESX or something like mm-hmm. that, uh, providing the infrastructure, for workloads that, are, that hold PCI data, then those hosts and all their solution and all their software, including NSX in this case, are all in scope for PCI. Interesting. And so that means that all the regulations, all the hardening and other tasks that you normally need to do for PCI apply to NSX. Well, how do you do that? And how do you do that in a way that it's not going to get in the way of the NSX administrator right. and the actions they need to do? So we will also go in and auto-harden the environment, and then if maybe somebody makes a change and it starts to drip out, drift out of compliance, we can actually push it back into compliance. And so that is uh, sort of providing a security layer, layer below um, 
uh, you know, below the application layer for an NFE uh, environment. Now, Bill, we both participated, HITRUST and Intel, in a very exciting collaboration with IBM Cloud recently um, in delivery of the IBM Cloud Secure Virtualization Service. Can you talk a little bit about that and um, why that was such an uh, important announcement in terms of uh, a differentiated cloud service capability? Sure. I think that one of the things that IBM did, I think, very wisely, and it was back when it was called software at the time, now mm -hmm. IBM Cloud, um, was that early on they invested in their entire um, uh, cloud infrastructure. They invested in servers that included TXT. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and they needed basically the software in the right circumstances to be able to sort of activate TXT and take advantage of it. Well, we had been working with, we were, in fact, I think maybe the first uh, Intel partner to work with TXT. And what that means is, is that in the case of IBM Secure Virtualization, as a customer, um, unlike any other cloud, a customer can, can go to IBM Cloud, and essentially order a configuration of the IBM Cloud Secure Virtualization, and it will, through a bunch of automation that we've worked with IBM and Intel on, uh, be able to spin up the physical host, so IBM provides the, the physical infrastructure, then be able to lay down um, all the virtualization infrastructure, which in, in that particular case includes um, uh, vSphere, NSX, and vSAN, mm -hmm. and then lay down the HITRUST products to provide governance and configure a, a security policy over that so we can encrypt the data, provide uh, controls over administrative actions, et cetera, et cetera, audit, all of that. Um, and all of underlying that is Intel TXT. Mm -hmm. And so just like I was describing in boundary controls, now you have sort of a, a lockdown, secure, dedicated environment that you, the customer, get to control even though it's running in the IBM cloud, but because we have boundary controls and because we're using all those controls there, um, it's a hard and secured environment for your high security compliant environments. And so that's a, that's a lot to put together and IBM and Intel and HITRUST have really worked a lot lately to mm -hmm. make it so all of that can be spun up and expanded and put in and control the customer. So that's a new offering that IBM uh, recently announced at Interconnect and it's uh, um, I think it's gotten a lot of people's attention. Oh, yeah, I think that a lot of enterprises are interested in that when they're looking at a multi-cloud strategy. Um, Bill, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Um, HITRUST is incredibly impressive in terms of uh, the unique capabilities it's delivering to data center environments. Uh, final question for you. If folks want to find out more about HITRUST and the solutions you're offering, where would you send them for more information? Um, I would just go to HITRUST. So, uh, importantly, that's H-Y-T-R-U-S-T dot mm -hmm. com. Thank you so much for being on the program today. All right. Thank you. Welcome to ChipChat Network Insights. My name is Allison Klein, and today we're coming to you live from the NFE World Congress in San Jose, California. I'm delighted to be joined by Prita Rahman, uh, Director of Alliance Marketing and Communications at VRMer. Welcome, Prita. Thank you, Allison. It's great to be here. 
so this is the first time we've had VRMer on the program, so why don't we just start uh, with an introduction about the company and your role there. Sure. So thanks for having me on again. I'm Director of Alliances Marketing and Communications at VRMer. VRMer is a data center and cloud security company that delivers a distributed platform with integrated security services, including software-based segmentation, micro-segmentation, application-aware monitoring, and cyber deception to help organizations protect critical applications and workloads within their data center. VRMer has also extended our patented distributed security system platform to protect workloads running on physical servers and legacy systems as well. This is a unique solution in the industry, in industry first, and it provides consistent policy enforcement across your bare metal physical, virtual, and cloud assets with network-based controls and an API-driven ecosystem. Um, also, VRMer is based right here in Mountain View, so practically next door. Mm-hmm. And uh, the VRMer DSS, a secure, distributed security system, is deployed across the world's largest banks, telecom service providers, government agencies, healthcare providers, and retailers. When you look at uh, the particular challenges mm-hmm. of uh, security when you're moving to multi-cloud, virtualized environments, what do you see as, as the biggest challenge uh, that data center operators and network operators mm-hmm. face? So at VRMer, many of our customers, as I just mentioned, are global service providers, financial services, healthcare, critical infrastructure companies that have been trying to implement various security approaches for a number of years. Their CIOs and IT operators tell us the same things over and over, that their old way of running IT ops is no longer cost efficient in their competitive industries. And um, they certainly got out of the information dark ages with their static hardware-first architectures and siloed applications, but uh, they simply cannot operate with the dynamism that's required for today's digital businesses. Security is really changing in the age of cloud and distributed systems. So the entire cloudification of IT has commoditized infrastructure and really imperiled appliances. And our customers have been on a journey through um, through that cloudification They started from the old zone-based controls sitting at the trust boundaries, you know, the Big Ten firewall appliances, Mm -hmm. moving through a hybrid model made up of virtualization and traditional firewall functions, and onto firewall appliances that were forklifted to a virtual appliance. But uh, those are simply not cloud-native and not designed for web-scale functionality, which which today's digital businesses require. And so our customers were really hitting bottlenecks with uh, appliance or custom ASIC-based solutions. Um, To add to that, a lot of our customers operate in highly sensitive and regulated environments, so they're feeling the need to segment their critical assets and workloads within their infrastructure and monitoring all transactions to and from those workloads and applications, which, you know, it's not even realistic to assume that the attackers are on the outside and the periphery anymore. We've seen time and again with intentional or even accidental actions of a privileged access individual exposing security weaknesses. There's the BYOD trend, the bring your own uh, device trend, where um, employees access corporate resources and bringing bringing in whatever flavors of malware they've accumulated on their devices, right? And um, so targeted attacks on those devices are a real threat today, not to mention electronic devices with TCP IP stacks, IoT devices like security systems, and even medical devices, which are hard to manage and patch. So these have all become vectors for attackers internally. So these different threat vectors with these different models and with their businesses also being under regulatory purview, our customers are really focused 
on looking for solutions where they can have as much control over their applications within their infrastructure and their critical assets and workloads and control access. So you've got a sticker on your laptop that I'm looking at right now that says mm-hmm. no appliances. Very big, bold, black X. <laughs> um, tell me why the uh, focus on no appliances. And you know, you've, you started to tell that story, right. but tell me what is the right solution? Um, so no appliances, we are 100%. VMware is 100% software-based layer 7 software segmentation security solution. So the security model within the data center has really evolved. It's evolved to require a deep understanding of application connections. From next generation firewalls to intrusion prevention systems and deception, a series of functions has been created to gain deeper understanding of the content and intention of network flows. So as such, layer seven or application layer visibility has become a basic requirement to provide application security. Um, In today's software-defined data centers and multi-clouds, there have been a number of policy enforcement options that have emerged to provide segmentation and lateral east-west security. Um, But all these methods provide packet processing and filtering at OSI transport layer four uh, through their appliances. And many don't have the advanced benefits that are provided by quote-unquote security-first solutions like next-generation firewalls and distributed security platforms such as Uh vArmor. So at vArmor, we believe that cloud application security requires understanding at the application layer or the layer seven, layer seven. And by east-west security, we're really looking at lateral transaction within the data center and a deep understanding of those applications, what they're communicating about, and, um, and you know, what those applications are and what they're communicating about. So these are capabilities that no appliance provides today within the data center. So we, given the fact that we are 100% you know, state-aware, application-aware application segmentation technology, we definitely are very proud of our no appliances stance. Now, the, the focus on layer seven, when you describe it, it makes sense, but um, where do you think IT is in terms of um, understanding that, that focus on application layer security, and, and where do we think we need to move as an industry towards educating on that? So I think with vArmor, well, IT, I'll answer the first part of your question first. I think there's, like I mentioned earlier, our customers are seeing a lot of, um, you know, a lot of, have certainly deployed a lot of solutions, security solutions, but a lot of their, of those solutions have stopped at layer four. Mm -hmm. So while they have a lot of protection, and certainly with SDN solutions, they have, um, the network orchestration capabilities, they have security, certainly, but those, those uh, capabilities stop at the transport layer. Mm-hmm. So there's certainly a great deal of frustration um, and the need to understand those application-level connections, which is what vArmor is all about and which we bring to the table, where we provide layer seven application-level uh, knowledge that not, you know, that not a lot of solutions provide today. Um, Layer 7 is really critical within the data center. Um, We believe that, you know, uh, (coughs) providing those advanced security capabilities at Layer 7 in a resilient, robust, and scalable manner within a modern data center data path is critical. And it's critical for a number of reasons. You know, the web um, service-oriented applications don't use well-known ports, and in large organizations, databases do not use standard ports either. Understanding and enforcing the client-to-service connectivity is important. 
controlling north-south internet access, detecting, detecting and preventing protocol hijacking, building detailed application layer telemetry around business critical applications is really important, um, meeting regulatory requirements, of course, for in enforcement is important. So I think for a number of reasons, and why applications? You know, what, why, why are we so focused on applications at vRMR? The digital enterprise relies extensively on application-to-application -application connectivity with partners, service providers, and customers. Organizations distribute their processing among their own data centers, mm -hmm. you know, a cloud service provider, and managed colos. So enterprise code can execute in a number of different venues, and the data is no longer con you know, confined inside a trust boundary, which is where your perimeter security enforcement stops. Finally, the mobility of the workforce is really a criti critical strategic component. Mm -hmm. so, so we feel that there's no true security enforcement unless it's at the application layer. I know that vRMR works with Intel in terms mm -hmm. of uh, delivery of solutions. Tell me about that collaboration and why there's a partnership here. Right. So uh, to give you some context, vRMR DS, a distributed security system, DSS, is a distributed security platform that scales horizontally across the data center. So in a single fabric, vRMR DSS scales across over 1,000 hosts. And as a distributed system, vRMR, again, has a single point of policy discovery and analytics with a highly resilient distributed enforcement plane that stretches across physical, virtual, cloud, and container workloads. Mm -hmm. Now, as part of solution enhancements, vRMR has worked really closely with Intel's x86 compute engine to create a solution that automatically benefits from future Intel CPU enhancements. Now, at this enhanced performance level, vRMR DSS avoids a lot of the bottlenecks commonly experienced by other network firewall solutions that are based on their own proprietary ASICs. Modern cloud installations in the data center need, absolutely need to be optimized for standard, efficient, and densely packed platforms based on multi-core x86 architectures. Um, Intel's industry standard architectures have really laid the foundation for vRMR's high-performance, high-performing, and scalable security solution for bare metal servers. So vRMR, again, you know, having that ubiquitous for vRMR, having ubiquitous processing capabilities across the data center, thanks to Intel, allows us to scale our security and make it flexible. And one of the considerations sometimes, you know, about um, deep layer seven packet processing can be sort of the cost and overhead. However, once security processing is actually migrated onto those ubiquitous x86 software platforms, it becomes feasible to process intelligently at layer seven in a scalable manner without those constraints of hardware-based or custom ASIC architectures that, that we often encounter um, in the market. So when you look at the solutions that vRMR is delivering, can you tell me a little bit about the, the scope of solutions that you have in the market today and how you think that that will um, evolve over time? Yeah, so vRMR is, is a leading data center and cloud security company. Um, and we offer the first security solution uh, in the industry that provides a policy-driven segmentation approach for protecting workloads, critical assets and workloads across bare metal, physical, virtual, and cloud environments. And looking forward, that the same level of protection will extend to container environments as well. So the vRMR uh, distributed security system is all already being used by companies worldwide um, and regulated companies, customers worldwide, to protect virtual and their cloud workloads to accommodate non-virtual systems and physical servers and to provide a unified policy enforcement across all enterprise IT deployments. Um, and really the context for this is, 
you know, the reality is that a lot of our customers have heterogeneous environments. You know, there are there are critical applications even today that are running on legacy bare metal systems that haven't been touched because right. nobody wants to touch them. It's it's critical. Mm -hmm. Don't touch it. But and and of course there are the virtual deployments and then there's the cloud deployments and then some container deployments as well. But the reality is that complexity is the worst enemy of security. You know, you don't want patchwork um, security solutions for these different environments and then trying to integrate those and security solutions and trying to have a unified view across those is really a logistical nightmare. So with vRMO, we've simplified that a lot where we provide one unified policy across those different heterogeneous environments so you can have one single pane of control and monitor security for, for all of those environments. And it's especially compelling for companies in high risk regulated industries sure. where industry or government regulations like HIPAA, PCI, FFIC, GDPR, SOCs, et cetera, they dictate close control over enterprise assets. So, um, you know, we've also been affirmed by Coalfire, which is a PCI um, quality sec qualified security assessor that we meet their compliance standards, three, version 3.2 requirements. So companies adopt our solution to implement geo-specific business unit of value-based workload segmentation and apply specific security policies to each. And other entities that benefit from the solution's granular application control and ability to segment an enterprise DMZ. So um, it's really about controlling your application destiny, if mm -hmm. you will, right? I mean, we look at it as, you know, the ability to actually look at, you know, which applications are critical to your infrastructure and to actually enforce that kind of a parameter, almost reinforce a parameter type of security footing per workload, per critical asset. That is really the value we bring here. And that is what is, I think is our unique differentiator. I'm sure we've piqued some folks' interest online in learning more about the solutions that you're bringing to market. Um, can you uh, provide a access point to learn more and you know, connect with, with folks from your company? Sure. We have a fantastic website at uh, www.vrmar.com. We have a very active blogging community as well, so definitely do check out the blog. It's updated and refreshed every few days. And we have a ton of resources and collateral there, webinars. You know, our video center is full of training webinars and, and videos that serve to further educate you about our path-breaking, acclaimed VRMA distributed security system platform solution. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure talking to you today, Preeta. Uh, I would love to hear more about VRMA as you guys progress in the market. Thank you so much, Allison. Thank you for having me. Welcome to Chip Chat Network Insights. We're coming to you live from the NFV World Congress event in San Jose, and I am so excited to be joined by Lynn Comp, Senior Director of Communication Service Provider Business Acceleration Team at, within the Network Platform Group at Intel. Welcome, Lynn. Hey, Allison. Great to be back. So I think this is maybe your eighth time on Chip Chat. Who knows the count? Um, but why don't you give a, a background for those who have not interacted with you on Chip Chat? Um, on uh, the scope of your purview at the company. 
Excellent. I have one of the most exciting jobs, I think, because I work across the whole supply chain. So I get to work with the network builders members, and that includes OEMs and TEMs and systems integrators, software vendors, and service providers. But I also get to work with the broader service provider industry. So I see all these worldwide trends happening where people are applying breakthrough software innovation in one place, and then that's inspiring someone else to do some incredibly unique deployments in another. So it's a very exciting role to be able to watch it worldwide as the industry and the whole supply chain transforms. You know, it's interesting in talking to um, folks from the industry and from comm service providers here um, one of the things that keeps coming up is open innovation and um, open source innovation, which which is, seems like a not a new trend, but a relatively new trend within the networking arena. Why do you think so many folks are looking at open innovation and um, as part of the foundation for the transformation of the network? I think there's a general recognition when the comms service providers look at cloud and enterprise that a lot of the pace of innovation really picked up when there was an emphasis on at least open interfaces, if not open source code as well. And the ability to, to add features at whatever pace was necessary, the ability to deploy workloads on demand was seen to be something that was very much rooted in the open source and the open standards of cloud and enterprise. Mm -hmm. Now, Open Network Automation Platform, or ONAP, I guess, is something that is a new topic of discussion. Tell me what that is. ONAP is a really interesting environment. It started out with something that AT&T called eComp, and it was their management and orchestration platform. And interestingly, they have it deployed in their network. And then there was also a project, OpenO, that was really inspired by China Mobile, and it had Huawei and ZTE and a number of other uh, contributors to it. And there was a realization, we're trying to solve the same problem, and instead of having fragmentation, yeah. let's join forces and have a more unified approach to addressing the automation of the network platform and the automation of onboarding workloads and the ability to do billing integration as mm -hmm. well. Now, ONAP has a number of um, participants in it, and what is it that um, drives the membership there, and where is Intel's role? So Intel is one of the uh, one of the platinum board seats, mm -hmm. and I think a lot of it roots in the fact that we have invested so much in open source over the mm -hmm. years. We're one of the top contributors in many of those open source communities, and AT&T and China Mobile and others have realized that it's really difficult to be the only source of your own software innovation because it requires a lot of developers. You don't have all of the support from the community testing and taking a look at the code quality and doing check-ins for you. And you don't have the benefit of other innovators. And so bringing Intel on board brought a lot of developers that we have sure. had contributing to OpenStack and to Linux kernel and many other open source projects. And banding forces together allows the service provider community to tap into developers that they just wouldn't be able to staff and keep on payroll consistently 100% of the time, but they can benefit from the innovation. Sure. When you look at all of the work going on here and you think back 
to five, ten years ago in the comm service provider arena, what's the most surprising thing that you're seeing in terms of uh, the collaborations, um, the desire for, you know, network innovation based on an open source code? What is it? Boy, all of the above, I would have to say. I spent most of my career in telecommunications and did little segues into software and another one into cloud and enterprise. And when I came back into the communications industry two or three years ago, I remember thinking, what happened? This They're moving really fast all of a sudden. So they're moving at a similar pace of deployment for NFV than what we saw with enterprise and virtualization. Mm -hmm. And obviously going through a lot of the learnings that enterprise had to as well, but not necessarily at a much slower pace than, than what we considered normal. So the speed of their deployment is much, much faster than I've ever seen. The willingness to have other innovation on the contributions into an open source community, that's really, really new and unusual for service providers. And then there's suppliers realizing I can benefit and potentially even have a lower cost of innovation for my end product if I'm part of a community and I'm getting accelerated development by pulling things out of the repositories and and hardening that instead of starting from scratch. Because there's a lot of really, really new trends that we're seeing. I think the other thing that was really interesting about ONAP is that it was an operator who took code that had been deployed in their network and put most of it in the open source community. And that's something that's fairly normal in cloud Mm-hmm. where you'd have some of the cloud vendors say, well, if you want to know how I benchmark, here's you go, here's the code reference. It's the first time I've seen that from the operators in the communications service provider environment, that they would say, it's running, and here's a start point, and it's not exactly a de facto, I wouldn't call it that, mm-hmm. um, but it's much further along to a, a product and a robust code base than what I had seen them do in the past. Now, I know China Mobile is one of the leading um, participants in this organization, and I know that you were just in China. Where are we in terms of uh, the driving network uh, transition in China, and is there anything unique in that market to pay attention to? China is a really interesting market. They have so many software engineers and researchers. At the same time, uh, they like to collaborate with with companies that are a little bit more risk-taking and pioneering. And so when NFV and SDN first came out, it it was seen as a given. Mm -hmm. And that was seen as a given within the research departments. And right now what we're seeing is that the operations organizations are really figuring out how do I bill for this? How do I manage in this? How do I retrain my workforce? And so it's a very encouraging trend when you go from the labs and the proof of concepts to the operations and maintenance people at first looking somewhat skeptically. But Mm -hmm. the fact is they're looking at it, which means that we're down that path to real deployments. When you look at the scale of the Chinese market, the thing that I think about, you know, when I was talking to a service provider from America, they're talking about, you know, a million to multi-millions. I think about the Chinese market and the scale of service that needs to be delivered um, it's astounding. What are the specific challenges there? 
Well, scale is one. Also, they have a very challenging terrain. If you look at uh, Beijing, it's surrounded by mountains and it's in a basin. And then mm-hmm. you've got Shanghai that's on a river with lots of rain. And when you're delivering network services, physical reality becomes something you have to manage to. Um, We're not in a clean room environment. Not in a clean room environment. A tier one city is 20 million people. And mm-hmm. so you're talking about a one city scale of in some cases, greater population than some countries in Europe. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of those scale deployment challenges that they have to think about. The good news in China is that their network infrastructure is newer, and so they can take advantage of things like cloud RAN because there's there's new fiber that's sure. been put down. So there's there's some pluses and some unique challenges that are there. Um, but the good thing about China is is you do have the China Mobile, China Telecom, China Unicom, and in some cases you'll find that uh, they're a lot more willing to share research and innovation because they're in very different markets, mm-hmm. but also. Um, they have this unique challenge that nobody else faces in terms of scope, and that means land size as well as the number of people to connect, as well as scale. Now, I want to shift to another topic we've talked about before, but I know that there's been a lot of thought um, advancements in this space. Standard benchmarks for network. This isn't something that's existed before. Tell me why not, and where the network industry is in terms of taking a look at this challenge. It's funny, when I first came back into this market a few years ago, I remember having a conversation with an operator and they said, well, we need to have the dimensioning and you know, we need a TCO model. And then I said, well, we need a benchmark. We have to have the industry agreeing on a benchmark. And they kind of waved their hand and said, nah, I just have all my operator, my suppliers come in and do their private testing on my private network. And then after a few months, we decide who to invite for the RFQ. And ironically, that same operator complained at me about the fact that the TCO of a software model wasn't that much lower. Mm-hmm. Well, perhaps the cycle and the time that you're asking your suppliers to take might have something to do with it. Mm-hmm. And so we've been bringing network services benchmark as a concept back into the industry, and it's getting a lot of support. Um, and it's just at the start point. Every time you start a benchmark, BM Mark and, and SPAC was not where it is today when it first started. Uh, but the whole goal is to give the service providers and their suppliers a, a set of synthetic benchmarks that everybody understands what the parameters mean when you run the workload. And then the service providers who have some of the smartest people in terms of knowing what their infrastructure does, they would translate that synthetic benchmark into, here's what it means for my infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And they would shortcut and be able to carve some of that time out of the process of all the fine-tuning and customization on their network models and then come to a decision point much more quickly on who to invite for the RFQ based on the measurements that they're posting that are well understood. Now, I know that you spent a lot of time in data center, and um, we do have the good, bad, and ugly of standard benchmarks when it comes to data center environments. What can the comm service provider industry um, learn in terms of what to do right and what to avoid in terms of approaching synthetic benchmarks in your mind? 
I think one of the best things that they could learn from is what some of the cloud vendors did a few years ago, which is to take the code that they used to test their environment or some portion of it and put it in the open source community or put it into a benchmark standardization process like OPNFV's Yardstick. Mm -hmm. Because then it gives everyone a reference point. Sure. This is what matters to me in terms of the parameters that I look to test for what will run well in my network. Being specific and concrete is the best thing that the operators can do because then it's something that instantly they know how to translate this capability or the supplier's product runs at this level and outputs these parameters. In my environment, that's what this means. And the whole idea is that they have a very quick way to translate the code that's artificial to the real, real world reality. When you look at where we're at with network transformation, you know, we've talked about open source, we've talked about um, benchmarking. What do you think is the next big challenge? I think the next big challenge is getting it operational enough, soon enough, to be ready to handle something like 5G. Mm -hmm. When you look at what 5G demands, especially at the edge, with the agility and the intelligence, being able to handle licensed and unlicensed spectrum, being able to slice the, the, the network up to give different kinds of you know, small, medium, large channels, the same way that virtualization did compute, you need to have that intelligence and agility much faster. Mm -hmm. And so we're in a bit of a race right now. Can we get the network transformed in the right places fast enough so that when 5G does hit, the edge and then the core of the network is ready for it? And can you imagine a world where we deploy 5G with traditional infrastructure? I can imagine someone trying and that the experience would probably not deliver the return or the service capabilities that they had anticipated. Final question for you. Where can folks engage with you if they want to continue the conversation? Well, first of all, you have to always go to Chip Chat mm -hmm. and look online. But I'm also on Twitter, and you can find me there. It's at comp underscore Lynn. Makes sense. Well, Lynn, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Um, I'm looking forward to hearing about that um, adoption curve and if we hit our goals in terms of 5G readiness. I have a feeling with the uh, speed that the network industry is moving in right now, we've got a good chance to do it. I look forward to seeing uh, the progress with you on another Chip Chat. Great. Thanks, Allison. Welcome to Chip Chat Network Insights. My name is Allison Klein. Today we're coming to you live from the NFV World Congress in San Jose, California, and I'm delighted to be joined by Chandra Sekhar, VP of Marketing at Avi Networks. Welcome. Thank you, Allison. So this is the first time that I believe Avi Networks has been on Chip Chat Network Insights. Can you just tell us a little bit about the company? Yeah, Avi Networks uh, got our start about four to four and a half years ago. Uh, we we uh, started with uh, load balancing as one of the uh, core services that we wanted to innovate. Mm -hmm. um, and over time, we've grown to provide uh, load balancing services, application performance monitoring, auto scaling, uh, 
and automation and self-service capabilities for uh, the overall application services needs for enterprises. Why did you decide to pick that particular area of focus in terms of the larger trend of virtualization of the network? That's correct. So uh, I'm glad you asked that question. So load balancing was an area that uh, our founders immediately saw as a very fertile uh, territory for innovation. If you look at what has happened in this space, for more than 20 years now, uh, load balancers have pretty much remained the same. They are uh, built on proprietary hardware appliances. Uh, they, they really don't offer much by way of scalability, and they're limited by the capacity of that appliance. Oftentimes, mm -hmm. enterprises find themselves doing forklift upgrades every so often in order to uh, refresh their capabilities and improve their performance, et cetera. And, and the other challenge as well is that a lot of these appliances are managed individually. And, mm -hmm. and as applications grow and uh, the portfolio of the number of such applications and where they are located increases, uh, it becomes challenging to manage these. So Avi actually uh, got its um, founding principles based on the software-defined uh, uh, movement, if you may. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of the ways in which uh, the solution is architected it stays true to the NFE and SDN principles. And so we have a, a separate controller with a distributed fabric of load balancers that can deliver services very close to applications. So while we got our start in load balancing, this is actually a full-blown pervasive application services uh, fabric that can deliver load balancing, that can deliver application performance monitoring through real-time telemetry collected by all of these load balancers out in the network and then uh, offer a much more robust way to roll out applications in the enterprise. When you look at that challenge statement, um, how, tell me a little bit about how you've approached uh, development of technology and what you're offering to the market today. Yeah, so the the way that the Avi solution is architected, I, I kind of gave you a little bit of a preview of there, mm -hmm. but one of the insights that the founding team at Avi had was that if you separate the control plane um, for the delivery of applications from the data plane itself of where uh, the L4 through L7 services, network services are delivered, you then get a much more robust architecture for how you deliver these services. So in our case, we call it, the central controller is called the Avi controller, and the distributed service delivery points are actually called the Avi service engines. And each of these service engines can be located as close to the application as uh, a particular enterprise wants. In fact, we talk to a lot of enterprises that talk about per-app services. Interesting. We can actually put a service engine in front of every single application if we wanted to, uh, you know, delivering dedicated services for that particular application, and it automatically introduces a natural state of isolation and availability and scalability for that. Mm -hmm. Now, what all of these service engines do is they are... Um, in real time uh, connected to the Avi controller sending telemetry data about the application. Avi is like one of the first companies to take advantage of the strategic location of the load balancer on the network. Mm -hmm. All your application traffic passes through load balancers and it's a great point to collect application intelligence. Sure. But unfortunately, we have not had uh, an architecture that could support it in the past. So these load balancers are able to send that telemetry information to the controller, which essentially has a big data engine
surgeon that is able to analyze all of that information and give you a very rich uh, you know, view of the application's performance, real-time stats about transaction performance, about client insights and security, and so on. Um, so architecturally, we are very differentiated from traditional uh, application delivery controllers in that sense. Now, obviously, um, innovation like this takes a lot of industry collaborations, and um, I think Avi is no different. Can you tell me about who you've been working with? Yeah, so Avi's uh, value proposition uh, is, um, is the fact that we are not tied to the underlying infrastructure. Uh, we can actually deploy these load balancers on bare metal servers, on Intel architecture servers, virtual machines, containers, or even in the public cloud. So depending on the ecosystem, we're integrated with a variety of different technology vendors. We're in integrated with Intel in the sense that we take advantage of all of the processor optimizations, the memory optimizations, the, uh, the network optimizations that Intel has delivered over the years. Mm -hmm. And Moore's Law has pretty much rendered uh, the, the performance uh, advantages that proprietary hardware has compared to Intel architecture servers virtually non-existent. We find that we can deliver a very high degree of performance on Intel hardware, for example. So mm -hmm. Intel is a very key partner for us. We can deliver upwards of five giga gigabytes of SSL thr throughput uh, to the um, and then and then as well as um, about uh, close to 2,500 to 3,000 SSL transactions on a single core uh, in an Intel box, um, and and you can scale that up vertically by adding more cores. And uniquely in Avi's case, we can scale that out as well horizontally mm -hmm. with multiple uh, servers representing a single virtual service. So all of those optimizations are po made possible by Intel. We're also uh, partnered with uh, NFV and SDN vendors um, like Cisco and VMware and so on. And then in the container uh, areas, um, you know, we are partnered with container orchestration platforms like Kubernetes and Mesos and Docker. When you um, look at the overall trend to um, virtualized networks, um, one of the things that's changing as well is uh, the move of Intel architecture being a common foundation across many of the platforms being offered in the marketplace. How are you taking advantage of those underlying capabilities with processor, memory, network performance optimization? So we, we are integrated with Intel in the, in the sense that we are able to take advantage of the uh, uh, DPDK toolkit from a mm -hmm. networking standpoint. We're able to take advantage of the advanced um, or, or faster uh, network interface cards that Intel is able to offer through its servers. And as I mentioned, we're able to take advantage, more importantly, of the easy availability of these servers in most data centers. Sure. Um, the, the, best, the story that I can best uh, relate to is one that one of our customers, a large payment uh, services provider, experienced a couple of years ago. They were getting ready for the holiday shopping season, and their um, uh, infrastructure in some ways came to a grinding halt because they found that uh, a promotion that they were running was wildly successful, and uh, they were receiving a ton of transactions, and their applications, uh, they were able to scale them rapidly on Intel architecture servers, but they had uh, gone down the path of installing hardware load balancers for uh, providing network services. Mm -hmm. And very quickly, those keeled over and died because they simply wouldn't be able to scale past the capacity of that appliance. And, and effectively, what they found out is all of the millions of dollars that they had invested in making sure that they had a fluid infrastructure model for their computing didn't really pay off because right. the network function didn't really serve them. 
so in 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 Avi's case, when when we were brought in, we were specifically brought in to be able to match the scalability of their compute infrastructure in the network function of load balancing and application services. It's an interesting analogy of uh, some of the larger challenges with that many enterprises are facing in terms of network bottlenecks and why they're looking at this more elastic or excuse me elastic. Uh, infrastructure to address right. this problem. Um, you know, you talked a little bit about the um, intelligence that you're able to pull out of um, the load balancers now in, in terms of uh, delivering more value to the customer. Tell me a little bit about how you see your solutions evolving over time and other capabilities that you may decide to integrate into the load balancing solutions. Yeah, so uh, that's the reason I always say that we got our start in load balancing. Mm -hmm. and, and what we've been able to do is create this architecture that allows us to build upon the application services that we're able to deliver for every single application. If you think of an application as an entity, it requires, I mean, the analogy that comes to mind is you build a house, the house requires a bunch of services uh, that need to be delivered, starting with uh, water, electricity, and gas, and gardening services, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So all of these services have to go around that. So in the, in the app world, you can think of load balancing, web application, firewalling capabilities, application performance monitoring, auto-scaling that application mm -hmm. in response to real-time traffic, et cetera. So our architectural underpinning allows us very easily to deliver these services uniquely to individual applications, and we can tailor these services based on the, uh, on the particular application that you're dealing with. Perhaps you want the application performance monitoring capabilities for a development and test set of applications so developers can understand what the bottlenecks are. And then in another case, you want load balancing services for a production application. And in yet another case, you may have a container-based uh, application that needs service discovery capabilities and micro-segmentation uh, capabilities. So all of these being able to be delivered from a centralized management framework is how AVI differentiates itself. And we, we see ourselves building all of these services around applications uh, quite easily because of our architectural uh, advantages. One final question for you. It's been a delight to talk to you today. Um, I'm sure that folks online are listening in and wanting to find out more about Avi Network Solutions. Where would you send them for more information? Um, our website is a great source of information about a quick, for, for a quick overview of all of the different use cases that we address. That is avinetworks.com. Mm -hmm. um, in addition, there is also an online knowledge base and a, an opportunity where they can download the product and try it for themselves on that website. Uh, so kb.avinetworks.com is another location for documentation and to learn more about the product. Fantastic. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Allison, for the opportunity. Welcome to Chip Chat Network Insights. My name is Allison Klein. We're coming to you live from the NFE World Congress in San Jose, and I am delighted to be joined by Mark Cohn, VP of Network Strategy at the Linux Foundation. Welcome, Mark. Thank you, Allison. So, Mark, um, I know that you have a very um, seasoned history in the industry. Do you want to just provide some background on yourself and how you came to be the VP of Network Strategy at Linux Foundation? Well, I've been involved in the open community for the last uh, five or six years. 
beginning with the Open Networking Foundation that uh, got started in 2011, way back then. And shortly after that, I got involved in the open source community with a Linux Foundation initiative that's called Open Daylight, which, mm -hmm. of course, is the SDN controller framework that's, that's gained quite a bit of momentum over the last couple of years. It's actually now supporting uh, production deployments, representing hundreds of millions of subscribers. And um, in, as I got involved in um, Open Daylight, not just Open Daylight, but SDN in general, uh, the companion technology became increasingly important, which is Network Functions Virtualization, or NFE. Mm -hmm. And I actually participated in the NFE in industry group as well. And by um, having the perspective of looking at SDN, looking at NFE, and then recognizing pretty quickly that they need to go together, it sort of fed my interest in getting more involved in um, some of the broader initiatives that have been unfolding over the last couple of years, namely open orchestration. Mm -hmm. And when I um, was involved in an NFE startup that unfortunately didn't make it, uh, <laughs> I then actually had an opportunity to join the Linux Foundation full-time and then took on a big challenge, which is the OpenO project, which is a open source orchestration project that actually ties together um, the orchestration of services across NFE and SDN mm -hmm. and legacy networks as well. Now, OpenO is going through another transformation as we head into the second quarter of 2017. Do you want to tell me a little bit about it? Sure. OpenO was a uh, was a was a very aggressive project that got announced in the at Mobile World Congress 2016. A few months later, actually was formed. And then five months to the day from the, from the day we formed it, we actually delivered our first release. So OpenO was a very successful open source project in general. And um, however, the community and the broader, or, uh, the broader carrier world decided that um, we need to really put a lot more effort and attention on open source orchestration, open source management and orchestration, or MANO, and actually had AT&T actually got started a project that was called eComp. And eComp is, is really another open orchestration platform that AT&T has actually deployed. Soon after the OpenO project got started, there were discussions from AT&T about bringing to light a new open source capability based on eComp. And that unfolded over the 2016, and then um, leading, and to make a long story short, leading up to a February 27th announcement of 2017 that we were going to create a new open source uh, project that uh, included open source eComp as well as the OpenO project. And that merge is quite significant because it represents the convergence around a single platform for end-to-end -end service orchestration. And enter into the world open network automation platform. Exactly, and, and the open auto network automation platform, our own app as we've been calling it, is, is that project. It is just starting to get underway. It's attracted um, significant operator support, representing uh, close to 40% of the world's mobile subscribers. On top of that, most of the major solution providers are, are strongly behind the uh, own app initiative. Mm -hmm. And we're just getting the technical discussion underway this week. AT&T is hosting a meeting right now to talk about architecture and the, and the merged technical approach. 
What I think is interesting here is that the comm service providers are also coming into play here. And, and you know, another experiences that I've had with open source, we do see end customers come in to, to provide guidance, but not nearly as deeply in some cases as what we're seeing with ONAP. Um, tell me a little bit about what you think is driving that engagement um, and you know, in ONAP and as well as other open source efforts. Mm-hmm. That, that's a really uh, a good observation because the traditional open source community and projects are really focused on more technical topics that are, that are mostly staffed by vendors. There's an occasional operator involvement. But if we look back to the first big project, Open Daylight, we had no operators when we started the project. And now when we look at uh, ONAP, we have significant operator participation. I think that's attributed to a couple things. First of all, open source is clearly moving up the stack. It's moving closer to operators, to the things that they really care about, which is end-to-end services, as opposed to some of the underlying technologies that are necessary, but not necessarily uh, in the operational domain. They're more in the technology domain. That's, That's one thing. The second thing is that ONAP represents a unprecedented convergence. I mean, typically we go in the opposite direction. We take one group and maybe split right. it into multiple initiatives. But this is a case where we, we had insightful operators and vendor participants that recognized the opportunity to be able to converge around a common platform. And because of the complexity necessitated by orchestration in general, we really need the critical mass behind it. It's, it's really not okay to say we're going to have many different projects going in many directions and see which one thrives. Mm-hmm. That would be a huge waste of resources. Sure. Um, when you look at um, ONAP, and, and you're just getting started today, um, when you think about what this provides in terms of a key capability to network transformation, what do you think is the most important thing that this group could go off and actually accomplish? And from your experiences within the open arena, how long will the industry need to wait to see you know, production from an ONAP organization? Well, I think we have at least a data point on production. I mean, the, one of the significant contributors to ONAP is, of course, Ecom. That's in production today at AT&T. So right. we at least have seed code and an existence proof that we can go in and, and, and deploy. Mm-hmm. But in an open platform, we're going to need the collaboration of not just the operators, but the solution providers and the, and the innovators as well. There's technical mm-hmm. vendors who are providing additional pieces that are uh, that are not necessarily the world's largest uh, solution providers but those who are critical as well and and what i believe is going to happen is that we need to create the community the community is mm-hmm. what is going to be the difference here if we can take this this relatively large group of initial participants and gel them into that community sooner then we're going to see a own app release, train, Mm -hmm. that's going to be closer to deployment. If it takes longer to create that community, then, you know, it's going to be directly proportional to to that objective. So I I would think that considering that our experience with open source is that it takes three or four releases in order to go from the initial formation of a project into production, I think ONAP is probably going to be along those same those same lines. And with a six-month release cadence, it could take a couple of years to get to that point. Now I'm going to change 
tactics on you a little bit. Um, you were here at the NFV World Congress event for a fireside chat on DevOps growing pains. Different topic. <laughs> um, tell me what you think about that. I mean, DevOps was you know the the hottest term in the industry a few years ago. Where are we today, and and why growing pains? Well, first of all, I think that DevOps is, is real in the cloud world, and since um, NFE and SDN are both leveraging cloud technologies, that's why it's on the agenda today sure. with uh, large operators. So I think that we don't have to convince anybody that this is an, an, an important area and an important transformation that, that, that likely will take place sooner rather than later. Mm -hmm. However, that being said, DevOps cuts at the heart of the big challenge of SDN, and what is that? That's the organizational side. It's not the technology side. It's not necessarily even the operational side because we're on the path toward automation. But mm -hmm. on the organizational side, it becomes much, much more challenging, especially considering the size and the magnitude and the entrenchment of existing organizations for these you know, very large operators. Sure. Because what they're going to need to do is to break down some of the silos, and we know that without the appropriate internal incentives, that just doesn't happen uh, by itself. So I think that that's going to be one of the, the, the big challenges. I think another challenge and one of the reasons why we're experiencing growing pains is that, is that open source represents a big step toward DevOps for many of the operators. Or in other words, we're moving from a couple of years release, uh, cycle to actually move a new release into production to maybe a six-month release cycle right. with open source that'll soon actually, with agile development techniques, you know, continue to shrink toward the more continuous development. But but even to move to six months is a pretty big leap for for many operators. Sure. So we're we're just at an early stage, I think, and 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 we're taking the right steps. But we have a ways to go to before organizations are really ready for what DevOps represents. Well, Mark, it's been a pleasure talking to you today. Um, I am always grateful at a conference like this one that you can take time out of your schedule to spend with Chip Chat. Um, thank you so much, and I hope to have you back on again soon. One final question for you. Uh, for those who are listening in on open network automation platform, they may want to get involved, join the organization, do something. Where can they go for more information? Um, they can visit our website first, which is uh, onap.org, or they can um, certainly find some of the, one of the many members who are running around the conference, mm -hmm. <laughs> including myself, who can also provide additional information. Well, thank you so much. Thank you very much, Allison. Welcome to Chip Chat Network Insights. We're coming to you live from the NFV World Congress event in San Jose. And right now I'm joined by Martin Taylor, CTO at Metaswitch Networks. Martin, welcome back to Chip Chat. Thank you. So Martin, why don't we just uh, do a start with a reintroduction of Metaswitch Networks. I know you were on the program a couple of years ago, but I'm sure there's some new listeners online today. Okay, so Metaswitch is a communications uh, software vendor, mm -hmm. uh, obviously a very strong focus on, on NFV. Um, most of our products have to do with real-time communications, so we're talking about 
IP multimedia subsystem, session border controllers, telephony application servers, everything that you need to deploy uh, voice and, and messaging in a, uh, a voice over IP network, uh, whether it's, it's fixed or mobile. But we're also very active in the uh, control plane area, so we've got very strong software plays around border gateway protocol and, and the, the, the IP network control plane generally. The last time you were on the program, we were in an era of wondering how quickly NFE would take off in the marketplace and you know, when the mass deployments would start. We're in a much different state of the industry right now. Tell me what you've seen and, and where you think the market is with NFE solution deployment today. Well, momentum has clearly built very substantially over the, over the last couple of years. Um, I don't think it's a case of if... Uh, network operators will deploy NFV. It's it's simply when uh, many of them, of course, are, are very you know far along that journey already. Um, I, I think we're seeing um, two different dynamics happening in the market. We're seeing, on the one hand, very tactical deployments of, of virtualized network functions, where there's no grand plan. It's just that if you have the choice between buying a network function as a proprietary box versus buying it as a piece of software that you can run virtualized, it's kind of a no-brainer uh, right. that, that you're going to go the, the, the software route these days. Um, and then, of course, there are the you know the grand visionaries in the industry like AT&T, um, you know, who are pursuing a very strategic uh, path to virtualizing their entire network and going about it in a, ver in a very thoroughgoing kind of a way. So we kind of you know we we play at both of those extremes um, mm -hmm. and and and. and and we, and we see, you know, intermediate points along the way as well. Obviously, and it's interesting that you say that, when you when you look at an AT&T or some of the larger service providers that have taken a much bolder step in terms of their public um, commitments to virtualized networks, um, there's an incredible um, competitive advantage that can be um, reached by being early in this space. What do you think, um, where do you think they are in terms of yielding that value and what are the fast followers um, at risk on in terms of not pursuing so aggressively? Well, well in, interestingly, um, some of the fast followers are actually kind of leapfrogging the first generation of VNFs. Um, we're, we're beginning to see this dynamic at play where uh, if you moved very early in the NFV space, you had very limited choice of, of virtualized network function products. And, and typically those were just ports of software from, from appliances. Right. Um, likely adapted to run in a virtualized environment, but not really delivering the full range of benefits of, of NFV. You know, they don't scale out. They're not, mm -hmm. they're not cloud native in, in, in any real sense of the world. Um, some of the customers that we're now working with, um, you know, w w we're not very early on in the game, but, um, and, and actually, and to be honest, observed some of the challenges that sure. the that the, the early the first movers were, were were getting with onboarding and with orchestration and, and that kind of thing, and and I think realized that going down a cloud native route um, actually is a is a better path. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, by kind of delaying, um, they may have you know they may benefit by leapfrogging that first generation. And when you when you're working with um, customers who are are looking to take those next steps in deployment. What are the typical um, network functions that they're targeting today? Well, we, we clearly we, we see the network functions that that are in our portfolio mm -hmm. because those, those are where right. we have the customer engagements. Uh, but having said that, um, one of the areas of most active deployment generally is voice over LTE, mm -hmm. um, and so you know we see a lot of interest in in um, 
virtualized EPC, the Evolve Packet Core, um, as uh, mobile LTE networks grow. And we also see a lot of interest in uh, the IMS and TAS and SBC, all those functions mm -hmm. that make up a, a voice over LTE um, thing. There's, you know, we, we also kind of see on the on the periphery of our activity, um, virtual CPE is 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 a big area, and we've got some interest there in our session border controller as one of those VNFs that can live in a in, in a virtual CPE. You talked a little bit about ported appliances versus truly cloud native service offerings. Um, if you look at the market today and you look at the challenges ahead, where do you think the next wave of innovation will be occurring in terms of uh, the network uh, industry? And are there specific challenges that MetaSwitch is specifically focused at? Um, w w we're seeing a, um, a continuing evolution of the virtualization space going on. So uh, I think w w one of the things that's actually been slowing the industry down a little bit is wrestling with the complexities of, of, of the cloud and virtualization environments that are out there. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, OpenStack has improved a lot over the last couple of years, but it's still quite a complex beast to to wrestle to the ground and, 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 and master it and get it mm -hmm. to do what you need it to do. Um, and uh, we, we now see people beginning to recognize that containers um, are actually an, an easier, better, cleaner, and, and more hygienic way of doing virtualization. Mm -hmm. um, so we're, we're hard at work um, pre preparing our uh, net network functions for containerization, and we've done a lot of demos in that space, but we'll, uh, we'll be containerizing our entire portfolio during the course of this calendar year. Um, and you know w w we see a lot of interest now about, uh, amongst network operators, again in kind of leapfrogging the first generation of virtualization and maybe going straight to containerization because it's perceived as just a, a, a much easier environment to work sure. in. Sure, more elegant in a way. Um, everyone is talking about the advent of 5G and and the um, corresponding race to get uh, virtualized networks in place in time for 5G adoption. Where do you think we are with the industry, and, and do you think that the service providers are serious about uh, this transition uh, and in time for 5G introduction? Yeah, I, I think there's a general perception that uh, 5G is really going to drive virtualization very hard, if for no other reason than the fact that 5G embraces this concept of network slicing so in, in such an, uh, you know, an all-encompassing way. Um, you can't do slicing unless you unless you virtualize. Right. Um, so it's it, it it certainly feels like um, you know 5G and virtualization are, are going to go hand in hand, and you know the laggards are going to be you know really forced to adopt virtualization if they're going to um, you know make the most of 5G. Um, uh, readiness. I mean, 5G isn't going to be with us for another couple of years, mm -hmm. realistically. So, um, you know, release 15 comes out next next June, um, and in in the early days, um, you know, m maybe we're going to see some deployments of 5G that don't in, in embody all of the use cases, and maybe don't even support network slicing initially. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the enhanced mobile broadband services are kind of the the, the mainstream use case, I think, and 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 and, and that's going to be the thing that rolls out first. So um, whether the industry is going to be ready or not, well, it's it's, it's certainly getting there at a, a pace. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
perhaps the more interesting question is whether the vendors are going to be ready with those virtualized network functions that are really going to um, you know, roll out nicely um, mm-hmm. to support 5G. You know, the, the next generation packet core, I think, is going to be a very interesting play. Interesting. Um, when you look at the portfolio of solutions that MetaSwitch is offering, um, what is setting your offerings apart in the in the uh, solution portfolio that is available in the marketplace, and how have you driven um, performance optimizations to those solutions? So I, 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 our differentiation really comes from a deep understanding of the software world generally. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, we're, we're very unlike pretty well all of our competitors in the sense that we started as a pure software company. Um, that was more than 30 years ago, and we've been a pure software company ever since then. And you just have a different sensibility and a different way of approaching problem solving as, mm-hmm. as, as a pure software player, Not ha- n- never relying on any kind of specialized hardware to do the heavy lifting, but learning how to exploit off-the-shelf, commercial off-the-shelf silicon to do, mm-hmm. the, to, to, to do the work for you. So, um, you know, b- be, being able to get really good performance out of x86 for the most demanding tasks in our world, that includes things like uh, session border control, media relay, DDoS protection, those kinds of tasks where traditionally people have always used specialized silicon, network processor chips, content addressable memories, th- th- those kinds of mm-hmm. things. We had to learn at first hand how to solve those problems on standard Silicon x86. And of course, along the way, we've made extremely good use of some of the software tools that Intel's made available, DPDK, of course, being, be, being foremost mm-hmm. among those. Um, and, uh, you know, m- mastering DPDK and, and, and exploiting it to the full, you know, take, takes a lot of, uh, of doing, a lot of uh, learning, uh, you know, which we've been doing now for five or six years. Sure. Uh, and, it's, you know, th- and that's kind of how long it takes to really get on top of, uh, of that subject. And of course, that pays dividends down the line as you become more familiar with the underlying hardware architecture. You're more able to take advantage of it in subsequent generations of processors. Well, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, our, our decision to stick with x86, particularly for a very challenging development around session border control, going back five or six years now, where. Uh, at that point, x86 was only just able to match the best available pr- proprietary hardware out there. But of course, mm-hmm. since then, um, you know, the, the, the generation after generation improvements we've had give us performance boost for free, effectively. Right. Uh, and uh, so now, you know, um, we're not just competitive; we're out there in the lead. Sure. And uh, you know, our competitors are still struggling with trying to get you know get off their dependence on proprietary silicon and, and learn how to do these things with with x86. Martin, it's been a pleasure talking to you today. Um, one final question for you. If folks who are listening online want to find out more about the MetaSwitch products available in the marketplace and engage with uh, your sales teams, where would you send them? Uh, MetaSwitch.com. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming back on the program today. It was a pleasure. We'd love to have you back again in the future. Great. It's been a pleasure, too. Thank you. Thank you.